Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hello, I'm Susan Violante and I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to be speaking on the phone with Buck Marshall, author of Swift Act, Swift Action for Permanent Recovery, a comprehensive diagnosis of America's current economy and how it affects the political and social systems, and a holistic proposal for recovery. But before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Buck. Buck Marshall taught political science for five years and received his doctorate from Tulane in 1992. After 20 years in the private sector, his reaction to the Occupy Wall Street movement was to write a series of books and establish the nonprofit Swift Act Alliance. For more information on Buck Marshall and his book, visit his website at www.swiftact.org. And that is S-W-I-F-T-A-C-T.org. Hi, Buck. How are you doing today? Hi. Doing very well. Thank you, Now, Thank you so much for joining us on Inside Scoop Live. I, I'm the one that read your book, and I've been looking forward to this interview for a few weeks now <laughs> since I read it. And the reason is because it's so current, and I found it very credible, and I could see everything that you were talking on that book on the news, basically, and put two and two together, and think about um, the 70s when I was growing in South America, and I remember how things were made um, uh, made in USA, all the labels of the clothing that we would get, and that meant something really good, and now you hardly see made in USA label on clothing and, and so many other products. So um, before we start, though, uh, listeners, we're talking to Buck Marshall. Buck, I wanted to find out if uh, you could please just give us a little bit of your background before we start talking about what your book is about. Of my background, so, I mean, educationally, I mean, I went to school, I have a doc- I went to Tulane, I have a doctorate in political science. Uh, I've forgotten what year that was. Uh, was that 98, I think? Uh, no, I'm sorry, 92 is when I got my degree from Tulane. I taught political science uh, for five years. That's been almost 25 years ago now. Um, so that's my background uh, as far as academically in this subject. I think it's um, awesome that, you you know, we, we get that out because a lot of, um, you know, with uh, industry and the Internet and the publishing industry, a lot of people are publishing a lot of um, nonfiction, self-helps, and, um, opinionated book, and I've read your book, and I found it to be very credible and 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 very knowledgeable of what's going on in the economy. And so I wanted to ma- mention a little bit of that. But tell us also a little bit about yourself now. Well, and, and of course, I guess to continue on with that, the thing is, I mean, people who know me, you know, I've been talking about these books for 20 years. And, um, you know, I've always had this idea of writing something and and writing it in a way that, of course, uh, you know, you can get these points across to a general reader, somebody not not only not a not not only for somebody who would hate this in my field, but, you know, people who typically don't read that much, Mm -hmm. uh, which is just kind of universal in our culture now. Um, And, you know, when I've read other kind of so-called general books, you know, you don't get very far into it, and it's like, man, most people can't read this. And so when I'm talking to a wide variety of people over and over and over again, I had the experience that, hey, you know, there's things, real basic things about how this works, and people just don't really have any understanding of it. So I've been talking about it a long time, and, you know, it's just been, you know, I've, I think I've said somewhere maybe in a previous uh, interview you know, it was when the Occupy Wall Street stuff was going on that I was just like, but, you know, I quit my job on very short notice. I took a year uh, writing, then I ran out of money and had to go back to work. And then part-time, I just kept at it and kept at it until I got them all done. And, of course, we're, we're, today we're talking about Swift Act, uh, but actually I, I published four uh, volumes, you know, essentially all at the same time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my background, my goodness, I'm somebody who's been obsessed with this subject. And, you know, I don't even know, have I read 800 books, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Everything that's out there. And and so this, this has been a, a lifelong project, really, of mine uh, that has just come to fruition now. And, you know, it's uh, it's a little interesting. I don't uh, – the, the kind of work that I do, it's, you know, I'm not an academic – you know, I have a different kind of a job, and 
I've just been able to take time off at different points mm-hmm. uh, and get the book done. And uh, now finally it's here, and I have a nonprofit. Uh, all of the proceeds of the books are going to the nonprofit, and then in the next few weeks we'll have some other, you know, T-shirts and caps and things uh, to try to, you know, be able to raise money for it. You know, it's taken a lot of time and money to, to put the website and the whole thing together. Uh, but basically this is a lifetime uh, kind of an interest for me. Yeah, and I think it's something that is actually very needed um, because even though there's uh, might be a lot of people like me also, um, I'm, my major is political science and and business administration and public administration. So I've always had an interest about what the economy does in society and depending on the cultural elements in it and the political ideologies in it, et cetera, et cetera. And I found that not very... Not, there's not a lot of people that can put all of them together in a very comprehensive way. And so I found Swift Act uh, to be was a, a holistic, if you want to call it something, explanation um, of what's going on. I, I, I appreciate that very much, and that, that's very, I mean, that, that's just exactly on point. Um, mm-hmm. It takes a lot of work to, to figure out that <laughs> that holistic picture uh, and it's just because what we get, we we get little fragments of this and that mm-hmm. and the other, and obviously it's it's not easy. But uh, I felt like I was able to put it together and, and paint up. And I I believe you're right. You sure did. Uh, listeners, we're talking about Buck Marshall's book. It's called Swift Act Alliance. And for those of you that have tuned in with Inside Scoop Live, uh, you already know that I try to get stay away from whatever book it is and learn a little bit more of the author. In this case, I'm going to vary this system that I have, because uh, although, Buck, I think you're very important, <laughs> I think that your message in the book um, uh, does need to be put out there uh, quickly and to the point uh, so that an audience can start following you on this. And I'm sure that you will get a lot of followers once they get this message. Tell us, in in short, what is Swift Act? Well, of course, I mean, first of all, it's an acronym for uh, solutions that, I'll, that I offer to problems that I describe in 15 pages. There's a SWIFT Act, number one, it's a 15-page summary uh, that I think is not like anything you'll find anywhere. I've, I've read, like I said, I've probably read 800 books. Uh, I don't know of any other place where you're going to find 15 pages to tell you exactly what has happened with our, our economy. So SWIFT is an acronym for the proposals. Um, first, when smart growth is actually, that, that little component is not actually a proposal. It's more framing the issue. Uh, and, and what it says is that what we don't need, the, the type of growth that we don't need, uh, you know, is inflated asset prices, uh, inflated housing prices, inflated stock prices, because that's what we get. And there's all kinds of mechanisms that have been used to make that happen. And so then when you see official, you know, statistics here, GDP went up by, even if it's bad, even if it's more than 2%, well, that growth had to do with rising asset prices, uh, higher stock prices, higher house prices. That has nothing to do with the real economy. Uh, So that's what smart growth is referring to there. So then the second letter is wage standards. I say that we need to have wage standards on imports uh, first so that Americans are not competing with low-wage labor, but also because people in these poor countries can make enough of a wage to be potential customers for American products. Uh, The the third letter, uh, I, is for industrial policy. I say that we have to literally, we're going to have to have government investment in manufacturing uh, to come anywhere near getting to where we need to be. Other successful countries, Germany, Japan, they've had industrial policy, you know, since the end of World War II. Um, there are countries like that that are not in the type of situation that we're in, uh, and I think industrial policy is really an indispensable component. Uh, the next letter is F for financial reform. There's a whole list of things. Uh, Citizens United uh, certainly breaking up the banks that I just foam at the mouth about. Uh, and there's a whole list of things, including uh, having a voluntary pension system uh, that people can pay into so that when they uh, retire, they have a lifelong pension and not one of these 401k plans 
that don't pay you nearly as much and that are, are much more volatile uh, because they depend on the stock market. Uh, and then the last letter, uh, T, in that SWIFT acronym is for trade and tax reform. I talk a lot about a value-added tax. Every other country, the 150 countries around the world, have a value-added tax, and we don't. And uh, what's important about that when you read it, uh, it just explains that those types of taxes, uh, you know, basically they favor exports. They, it's a tax that applies to imports and uh, exempts at the same time anybody exporting. It makes a big difference. It provides incentive for investment domestically. Every other country has it, and we don't, and we need it. So that's what the SWIFT uh, acronym in that sense uh, stands for. Now, very importantly, and of course, Susan, you know, you read the book, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was just a weird, someday if I ever, you know, tell the story in a different context, something that kind of gives you goosebumps, you know, I was just scribbling. I came up with this acronym, and it was a week later that I was watching the news, and I had never at that point, I had never heard of the international organization known as SWIFT. SWIFT no. is an acronym, and of course it's in French, so, you know, I, I, I don't have it in front of me. <laughs> but uh, I think the news story back at that time uh, was something, what was being discussed was us potentially seizing assets from Iran or doing something about terrorism and whatnot. Well, SWIFT is the entity that handles financial messaging. So just like you and me send text messages to one another, this handles, SWIFT handles financial messaging between all the central banks on Earth. So you have instantaneous financial transactions and the entity that handles all of that is this entity called SWIFT. Oh, wow. Well, okay, so I'm like, gee, is this a coincidence? <laughs> well, my book is SWIFT Act. We need to do something about SWIFT. And so the way I think of it, SWIFT is the head of the snake, and we need to cut off the head of the snake. And, you know, I'm one person. Eventually, there are going to be a whole lot of people who say, you know what, SWIFT, we don't think the banks should rule the world. We think the banks should work for us, and that's what SWIFT Act is all about. Awesome comparison with the, taking the snake by the head, because that's something I've always heard my dad say every time there's a problem. No, you've got to cut the head of the snake or else he'll bite you back, and I think that's exactly what's happening. The snake is biting back um, to our economy, and um, everybody is just going to be hurt even more if nothing is done. What comes first when you want to um, – I mean, it is complicated. It, 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 I, I see society, economy, and politics all like um, the egg and the hen. Which one came first? You know, you don't know which one to tackle because uh, every, everything affects each other. And so the culture context affects the politics. Politics, um, ideology affects the economy. Um, with regulations or not regulation, and economy affects all of it um, in the same turn. So when we're talking about doing something, you know, I think that you're right at the point, um, on point with the economy, because I think that if the economy is good, everything falls into place. Sure. But, it, yeah, but for that to happen, there's got to be some changes in politics um, as well. So what what did you find in all your reading, and and what are you suggesting um, needs to be done first, and especially now that we're beginning a new uh, cycle in our politics? Well, the I mean the I guess the uh, even before we could talk about a policy or something, I would I guess what I would say what has to come first is just is recognition, mm -hmm. and what is it's always. Uh, it's just maddening to me and kind of baffling. If you if you go out, you know, on the street and you just talk to people and you say, well, you know, da da da, what's the problem? Well, either the first thing they're going to they're going to say the Democrats, or they they're going to say, oh, the Republicans. Well, you know, there's a real problem there. Um, and and one way, you know, I talk about it, I, I put a, you know, I quantify everything. So I looked over a long period of time, and I say, well, you know, how much difference is there between a, a Democrat getting elected president and a Republican getting elected president? Uh, what I found, of course, there are differences in how the money is spent. If you look at 
the difference in how much money is spent, federal spending, it might be $500 billion a year. Okay? Uh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. But then I looked at all kinds of data that tells me that our economy has got, been gutted by offshoring and finance now is the driver of growth. And I looked at all these distortions and what I came up with was what I described as a $15 trillion hole in the U.S. economy. Wow. That's how far we are from where we might be if we hadn't had all this bipartisan support for offshoring. So what happens is that we have six corporations that own all of the media in the country. They tell all of us every single day, 24 hours a day, that everything is left-right. You're liberal or you're conservative, yada, yada, yada. And the fact is... We're, pay, we're focusing all of our attention, no matter which side you're on, all of your attention is on maybe $500 billion a year in how much you spent and how, the, how you want the government to spend their money. Okay, well, guess what? We've got a $15 trillion problem. We have, a, we have thir- something that's 30 years of $500 billion a year. And where did that problem come from? Well, that problem came from both parties. Mm-hmm. That problem came with Bill Clinton being in full agreement with, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush. That's where that came from. And, and the reason I'm always, you know, just go on and on about this bipartisanship is that that's not what you hear. If you go talk to people, they don't say, yeah, we have this bipartisan problem. Well, that, actually, now, I, I, you know, I'm a little, I'll walk that back a little bit. I was, I, I was genuinely surprised uh, in this election at how much people really did get it really more uh, certainly on the left. Uh, you know, I talk all about, you know, you know, historically we had these figures. Ross Perot was a conservative who was against NAFTA. You know, Pat Buchanan, Lou Dobbs, now Donald Trump. Okay, they're all conservatives. They're opposed to this, these trade deals. But then on the left, you've got Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Ralph Nader, the Green Party. How is it that they're all in agreement? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason they're in agreement is because our politics has been turned sideways. The issue to me that's so critically important is not left-right. It's more up-down. Are you, are you in favor of this globalist system that has stripped us of our factories and turned the United States, when we, the production that we do have, it comes down to producing components that go somewhere, and there's six or seven countries in Asia and Latin America, and they all make components you know, say for automobiles, and they ship them to Canada or Mexico, and you put them all together. So instead of planting crops and selling those crops, well, now we make components and we sell the components. Mm -hmm. So that's what globalism has done to us. And what's important about it is that when you do that, all of the supply chains, see, disappear. For every three jobs that are made in manufacturing, there's another five jobs in supply chains. So this model has stripped us of the supply chains, mm-hmm. and they basically cut our employment in half. Uh, and, you know, so this is the issue. The issue is globalism, and, you know, some people, are, it's like, are they freaked out about the word? But, yes, nationalism. Nationalism in terms of the economy uh, is something that, to me, I mean, you know, the, the purpose of the nation state is to protect its citizens, The purpose of the nation state is not to turn us all into the batteries that you saw in the matrix, right? Beating the global system. Well, Wall Street wants that because that's how they make their money. So they want to do whatever they can to turn every nation state, regardless of whether it's an advanced country or a poor country, they have different little models for each one, but they're going to turn every nation state into something that feeds their interest in the global economy based on low-wage labor. And I don't want that to happen. Yeah, and I don't either. <laughs> because uh, it is scary to see what's going on, and I don't think I want to live in the matrix uh, <laughs> yeah. model. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Copper Top, what did you do today? Well, you know, I helped the global economy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, that's, you know whose, whose values are those? Who, what was that? You know, and, and so all of that happened. So they can make all of this stuff somewhere where the people, uh, you know, have you know, work for two bucks a day, and and we'll never have a labor union. 
and you know, directly or indirectly, we all have something to do with it. Because when you're, a, I don't know, I'm going to put the worst case scenario. You know, you're in a poverty level, and you're a single mother, and you have four kids that need a, a t-shirt and shoes, and you don't have the money for it. You're going to look for what is cheaper to buy. And unfortunately, the cheaper to buy is exactly what's coming from the offshore, uh, you know, little kit assembling, uh, cutting, or doing something on that T-shirt. And so how can an average Joe help build a healthy economic structure once that we're, you know, in this problem, or at least boycott uh, the dismemberment of this country? Is there like a place where to get this information for the average Joe to start doing its part to uh, get worried about it and and just do even if it's a little change in their habits as a consumer? Well, I mean, it's it's a terrible problem because it's a trap, and it's a trap that, of course, has been created by this monstrosity I call the Wall Street trade mm-hmm. complex. Of course, you know, if, you, if you're dirt poor, then you've got to shop at Walmart. And, and thing, the thing is, even going – when I look at Walmart, my goodness, there's been a tremendous change in the percentage of goods that Walmart sells you know, that are imported compared to what it was 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's just really dramatic. Um, you know, in the short term, all I could advise anybody to do – I'm sorry to sound self-interested, but in the short term, I, I would just tell them to, to sign SWIFT Act, to sign the petition – um, it's very difficult to sell, tell somebody in economic straits, uh, you know, hey, you can't do this. You need to go somewhere and buy, buy stuff that's more expensive. I don't see any way to do that. I did yeah. have an idea um, a long time ago of a periodic, um, I, and it's something, I mean, I'm, it just comes to me. I need to flesh it out more. But when I see, because I've seen other people, uh, there was somebody who um, I think his family was uh, – it might have been Armstrong Tire and Rubber. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. But he was wealthy. He was a business owner, and he was calling for a boycott of Chinese products. And you, so you think about stuff like that, and then, you know, just like you're saying, how can you really tell people to do that? Well, what, what uh, is, you know, possible is you might say, well, you know, on, for one month out of the year, and maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's October – uh, we're going to pick October, and during the month of October, we're not going to buy anything from China, um, or we're not going to buy anything, you know, that has uh, some other labels on it, uh, because it, it's not hard. You know, all you got to do is get on the internet and figure out, well, you know, here's if this label says, uh, you know, Pakistan, you know, how much did those people make when they made that? Yeah. Um, you know, so there is some potential for something like that, and I, I thought that at some point. You could go to a company like Walmart if we have enough support, and you could say, you know, here's the percentage of your goods that you're selling that are imports, and we would like you to reduce that by 1% per year. Now, of course, that doesn't sound revolutionary and foam at the mouth, uh, and, you know, to sound like Obama, hey, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but I can see that if we put political pressure on big box stores and said, we know what the statistics are because they've been reported. I've got in a different uh, book, I've got some uh, material on that. Mm -hmm. So hello, big box store. I've got 10 million people here, and we'd like you to make a commitment to reducing uh, the import percentage of your sales by 1% per year. Well, over 10, 15 years, that would make one hell of a difference. Uh, And that, that, I don't mind saying that would be a goal of mine with Swift Act. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because sometimes that's all we can do is sign a petition. That's a way that people can go because if you think about it, like you said, it's really complex. It's a trap. You find yourself like, well, what does it matter if I buy one T-shirt? I mean, what change is it going to do if I don't? You know, and, and, well, you know, it will if you do your part and somebody else did their part and you accumulate all that then that can create a different way of thought and consciousness uh, to people. Uh, One example that I like to mention of this and how it works is I remember uh, when my girls were younger and they they had their head on the fashion thing. Well, 
they wanted only brand names, and I'm like, you're not going to use any only brand names because uh, it, it doesn't make sense that you, for a gene that you're going to use to climb trees, ride horses, and, you know, right. and get in the dirt, uh, you got to pay like $200, so forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Forget about it. So you're going to take this one, and that's it, and that's how I... Well, now um, they're in their 20s, and they're basically learning how to live by themselves, and they're buying recycled stuff. They're going to Goodwill on, on their everyday clothes and stuff. Why pay uh, a lot of money on something? They just go to their local Goodwill. They go to sometimes to the farmer market because they don't want to have pesticides, and they say, well, okay, I'm going to improve every Saturday the produce that I buy once a week or once a month is going to be to the local farms and so forth. They're growing herbs in their own, and I mean good, healthy herbs, <laughs> herbs in, the, in, their, in their balconies, you know, like basil and stuff, instead of going buying something that will come from somewhere else. And um, so if little by little you change your lifestyle and other people are doing it, big things can come from it is what I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, there's if we've got 16 million people unemployed, I'm like, wow. Why, why would any of those people not sign my petition? Yeah, well, I agree. I'm signing on it, by the way. I went to your website, and I will sign on it. Um, actually, I might do it while we, we're doing the interview. Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life experience as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts, as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to InsideScoop Live. Today I'm talking with Buck Marshall, author of Swift Act. Stay tuned because we are going to continue this must-listen and interesting conversation with Buck about what is SWIFT Act, his holistic view of current economy in the U.S., society, political, economy circle, and bipartisanism, how the average Joe can help turn things around, and the importance of the SWIFT Act petition in the Trump era. But in the meantime, you can learn more about Buck Marshall and his book, Swift Act by visiting his website at www.swiftact.org, and that is s w i f t a c t dot org. I, I was looking at uh, some of the things that you sent me for me to prepare to the, for, about yourself and your work, and I saw in your bio that you put in a quote from the book, and I think that it's kind of an example of what um, we were talking and what one individual uh, can do. And the quote says, our individual actions are collective, and our collective actions are cumulative. Um, can you elaborate on that for us? Well, sure. So, I mean, you know, that it's just like you say, everything is so complicated, and it's like, you know, so the, the reaction is to just be overwhelmed. Um, our individual actions are collective. It just means that when you're doing something, and certainly other people are going to join you and do the same thing, then you're part of a collective action. And over time, cumulatively, that individual that became collective action will have absolutely a tremendous impact. And, and the reason I wanted you to say that is because I believe in this, this the, the, the next level of what's going to come of um, – a swift action, globally speaking, is that if a country starts thinking about their own interests and taking care of their own economy and trying to be self-sufficient so that their people have the benefits of, you know, having all the products and labor and the supply chain is healthy and, 
and will structure within, other countries are going to do the same. Well, that's right. And, and of course, the thing, you know, that just like the, the whole thing with the wage standards, see, to me, um, you know, Wall Street in this whole, the whole corporate uh, complex, multinational complex, you know, if you go to any poor country, they have no chance. There's no chance that, you know, people are going to be, you know, have, have that much success with a labor union and raising wages and whatnot. The whole government, the whole economic policy of that country is geared toward attracting foreign investment. And so they've cut taxes and they're going to do whatever they can to get these multinationals to come there and invest in their country. And, and a lot of times that means if you want to form a labor union, you're going to get shot. You know, we've got people in Honduras getting bumped off right and left. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so but the thing is, so to me, the best chance that those people have of, high, of getting higher wages is for something like this in this country and in Europe where we have wage standards, and we say, you know, we, we passed a law in 1935, the U.S. Congress did, and, you know, uh, that established the minimum wage. So what Congress has done is they've just bypassed their own law because they allow companies to sell stuff here that wasn't made at a minimum wage. They say, oh, well, if it's imported, we don't care if you pay a dollar a day. Yeah. Um, so the, the over the long term, what has happened is that, you know, you have population explosion in these poor countries because they have such low wages. There's no social security. There's no tax base. And so the wages are, are low. They're going to stay low. And those people can't afford to buy American products. So the, this whole, the way globalism is talked about, like, oh, yes, we have the opportunity to sell to a global market. Well, then when you look at it, the only people we've been selling to are American companies that moved offshore. We can't sell. There's no. There is no consumer market in poor countries. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you can't sell something to somebody who makes two dollars a day. So, well, guess what, folks? Uh, Americans tend to be, you know, paro- parochial. You know, they they don't know a lot about you know other countries and whatnot. Well, this is a real simple connection. And what I say in my video is that ultimately economic outcomes in this country are a function of the wages we pay people in poor countries because those people make the things that we buy. Yeah. We need customers for American goods, and that's why we need wage standards on imports. Yeah. And you you do uh, actually explain that uh, very well when you talk about the industry model and the plantation model and the difference in both of them. Uh, and in the the difference, the biggest difference that I saw is that the industrial uh, model, which is what we want, is what the employees are customers. And so uh, everything reinvests itself. It's a cycle. It's like um, a symbiosis. Some, is that how you say it in English? Symbiosis when, what do you call it, the mushroom leaving off the tree, but it's not kind of killing the tree. They just play together. And yeah, they, that, that's right. They're right. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> It's, it's called it's the virtuous circle of growth, mm-hmm. and it's just like, you know, what's so amazing about it, when you just have these two models, and then I say, well, you, you know, there's all kind of complicated stuff. Forget all that stuff, you know. It just comes down to one thing in the beginning. Are your employees your, your customers or not? Yeah. And if you look at the history of America and the whole, you know, just – amazing things that happened. Now, of course, we had, a, we had a, a large market with high-wage consumers, and initially that was because there was a scarcity of land. If you didn't offer people enough in wages to move to an urban area and work in what was then a factory, uh, you know, they had the option of going and farming whatever their homestead or what have you. There, you know, there was an abundance of land and a relative scarcity of labor. Wages were much higher in this country. That's what people don't get. Our our country, for a very long time, had the highest wages in the world. Mm-hmm. All right? So what happened there is that all these innovations with industry and they learned how to mass produce and whatnot, they were producing for a market of people who could afford to buy what they were selling. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
And then, you know, we get the Depression, and there was a crisis there. But all of the policies basically, and that, that's another thing for years that I've run into that people don't get, when you, when you look at policies that are, uh, you know, that they call, think of as social welfare, like unemployment, child labor laws, minimum wage, those policies are just designed to support demand, right? You've got to have people who can afford to buy what you're selling. So to get back to this uh, point that you were talking about, when your employees are your customers, then business has a self-interest in paying higher wages. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford raised wages for his employees so they would have enough income to buy the cars that he needed to sell. So when that happens, the profits are shared through higher wages. When people have higher wages, instead of being able to afford one pair of shoes, now they can afford five pair, ten mm-hmm. pairs of shoes. And when they when that happens, guess what? Your sales go up and your profits go up. And when that's happening, you say, oh, my goodness, there's incentive for investment. So you go invest more, and then the cycle repeats. And, and the customers work. then become loyal to that because they were also employees, and their children would probably be their employees and so forth. And then there's the pensions that the companies used to pay the uh, retired employee too. We're going to um, um, we went from that uh, talking to pensions uh, plan and and retirement. We went from that to having the government do that, take the place of the what before the manufacturers would do for their employees for their retirement. Uh, and now what's happening is that the government, in many cases, just look Italy or look um, South America. Um, there's no more Social Security because uh, they run out, out of money. And it's because the government is one entity trying to support all the elderly and all the children that need help and all the people that need welfare. And instead, when the company took care of their own employees for their retirement as well, putting aside for them or, or whatever system they had, then if one manufacturer closed their doors, it's not the entire nation that's going to be without the retirement. You know what I mean? So there's, um, it, it's like a monopoly that will... Well, so so what, is, what has happened is that the private sector, you know, they've reneged on their responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they, you know, there's a guaranteed uh, pension uh, fund. I've forgotten exactly the acronym for it. Uh, but it, makes, it, may, it puts government on the hook for, pen, for pension plans that were run by companies that went bankrupt. Well, mm-hmm. the thing about it is the only reason they went bankrupt is because Congress enacted Wall Street rules that made it legal for companies to rob their own pensions and use that money to finance company exactly. operations. Okay, so when they go bankrupt, they go, oh, my goodness, and they run to the whatever the PCCB or something, it's a federal entity, and they say, oh, well, now we've got 18,000 companies with underfunded pensions because Mm -hmm. we figured out a clever, profitable way to make that happen. And so when when those 18,000 companies do that, they say, yeah, well, now this is the federal government's responsibility. And then they come out and they say, oh, well, my goodness, the federal government is going bankrupt. There's a prime example of how the government is bad for you, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, they just absolutely reneged on the responsibility. You know, I talk about, uh, you know, the the quote-unquote contract between the government and the private sector. Mm -hmm. All right. I was around when Reagan ran for office. Um, What Reagan did, and, and very importantly, Jimmy Carter did it before him. Uh, but what Reagan did, you know, we, we, we made a deal with the private sector. Reagan said, we'll cut your taxes, and that will free up money for investment. So we cut their taxes, and what they did is they invested in low-wage countries overseas mm-hmm. instead of investing in this country. Mm-hmm. I just saw a tweet uh, from Bernie Sanders, I believe. I think it was something like, you know, uh, in the in the 50s, it was something like 30% of government revenue, the federal government's revenue, came from corporate taxes. Now, 9% of federal revenue comes from corporate taxes. Hello. Yeah. It's impossible to, to sustain an a economy that way. Yeah, of course not. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just like, it's just unbelievable. Uh, you know, the things that have changed when, when Eisenhower was president, uh, a Republican president, 
back in the 50s, oh, my goodness, corporate after-tax profit, 5%, 5.5%. Corporate after-tax profits today are 10%. There's not, you know, should we have a national day of mourning because corporate profits are too low? You know, I, I, I just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> companies can't afford things that they say they can't afford. And, you know, their their top uh, people, their CEOs and whatnot, they have pensions. And those same companies say, oh, yeah, but we can't give, afford to give pensions to employees. That's baloney. What that means is they, uh, they're they too greedy and they don't want to cut into their profits. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be a balance. At some point, there's got to be a balance, and it's not happening right now. Um, I want to tell our listeners about your website. And you can I found your uh, YouTube link there. So um, go ahead and visit www.swiftact.org, and that is S-W-I-F-T-A-C-T.org. What's happening in the future for you? I mean, now we know who our president is, and we kind of see what Barry is still too soon, but we kind of see more or less what he's been doing in the beginning, and sometimes in my mind made sense, and sometimes it's scary. So uh, what do you think, um, what, what are your plans for SWIFT Act um, right now? Yeah, so it, it, it definitely can be confusing. I mean, Trump's election cost everybody, you know, by, uh, you know caught everybody by surprise. Um, you know, my thought is that this battle, you know, hasn't gone away. I'm, I'm, I get, um, you know, very dissatisfied with people who come out and say, you know, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, and, you know, it's like the issue is where are you on trade, and secondly, where are you when it comes to Wall Street? Mm-hmm. So now we have Trump saying things that you know we just we don't know yet how you know how things are going to work out as far as the trade issue under Trump. Not at all happy with uh, what he seems to be doing with Wall Street. It's, yeah. it's kind of crazy. So you know, it's like you know he. he at one point, I had a letter to him, and what's posted on my website is a is a one letter that was written to all the presidential candidates. What's amazing to me about Trump is he's come out, even though he said things during the campaign, he even said something about reinstating Glass-Steagall, right? Mm-hmm. Because he'd say, you know, Bill Clinton's the one who, who repealed Glass-Steagall, and the banks got away with this, blah, blah. Well, if you look at what's happening, of course, now he's saying, yeah, we're going to take off all these regulations on Wall Street. Well, clearly, Donald Trump hasn't read my book. Yeah. Wall Street and the companies that moved offshore, it's one big complex. You can't – if Trump wants to have a battle with those companies that moved offshore, well, guess what? You're, you're talk, when you do that, by definition, you're talking about taking on Wall Street. That's where Wall Street makes their money. Mm-hmm. They make money off of low-wage labor, Mr. Trump. So, you know, there's a total disconnect there on those two issues. Um you know, what's what's interesting, if you look into the future and you say, well, wait a minute, you know, in this election, and it's, it is very, a very interesting observation, I think, totally true, the establishment, the political establishment lost the election. Yes, on the Democrat side, but also on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. What did Barack Obama and Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, have in common? What they had in common was TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There is nothing remotely bipartisan, you know, remotely partisan about this whole thing with the trade issue. So then, so now Trump wins, the political establishment lost. So does that mean that any future candidate, that, does that mean that, hey, free traders no longer need to run for office, regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat? I wish that it meant that. Uh, my my instinct says, you know, there's so much money to be made on low-wage labor, this is a battle that's not ever going to end. Yeah. So I'm really committed to educating people on essentially the simplicity, you know, that there are these two issues. One is offshoring. Offshoring is not trade, and banks are not factories. And, man, when you figure that out, that's really all you need to know. We need to structure our economy in a way that it creates jobs, good-paying jobs for millions of people, and the jobs are also jobs that can, uh, you know, fund a retirement system, a pension, a lifetime pension, so you can retire. That's what we need. And when politicians come with all this gobbledygook, I say stay focused. Just those two things. 
And if we do that, you know, consistently and, and with enough commitment, it'll be like a magnet. And ultimately, I think any politician is going to be in a defensive position. They got where you know the question is: Tell us what you think about those two points. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. And I just want to push that priority. I don't think we can wait around for four years and see what happens next. Instead of waiting for politicians to come to us, this is a people's platform that was not written by lobbyists. And I think the vast majority of people uh, ought to be able to agree with it. And if we get enough people to support it, uh, we've basically written our own platform and ultimately, uh, pol politicians will have to come to us to represent our interests. Yeah, and you know, if at, at least by you know reading this, it will give you knowledge, knowledge of a, a very simple words, straight to the point uh, compilation of what has been happening in the U.S. throughout our uh, a time frame, our history in our economy, and and then there is all the different alternatives to correct this that you propose in it. Um, again, uh, listeners, check out uh, Buck's website at www.swiftact.org, and that is S-W-I-F-T-A-C-T.org. And check out his book. I, you know, your book is one of the one of the books that I keep, and and I read hundreds. I'm not exaggerating when I say it. I I, I read hundreds of books per year, and um, I kept it. I gave it to my dad to read. I read it with him again, and we. It, it, I gave it to my uh, daughter, who's also a political science major, for her to check it out. And I think that we must get um, the knowledge out there and so that we can elaborate, inform questions and not be passive ab about what's going on. And uh, check out the book, go to his website, and maybe sign the petition. Uh, it's up to you, but do something. <laughs> do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Buck, also, you say you, you're... You want to spread the word about all this information that you got. Um, can can people contact you for maybe speaking events, or do you do those? Uh, or uh, sure. So the it, it's on the website is info at swiftact uh, info at swiftact dot com. I think I had it. Uh, is swiftact org is the address of the website. But sure, all they've got to do is send me an email, and I'm happy to go anywhere that I can anytime. Uh, and I, I think before long, I'm going to be doing a lot of that public speaking. Um, I've certainly done a lot of it, and I've thought enough about this uh, and feel very focused on this mission. So I very much appreciate anything like that. Mm -hmm. And if you have a book club, this is the perfect material for a book club, especially so relevant now. So, um, again, Buck. And, and I see people, I see that idea of, you know, having small groups of people who've read it, and, you know, it's like, because what's so, you know, people are, they're overwhelmed and they have little pieces of this and that and the other because nobody's, you know, gone to cut off the head of the snake. If you had a little group of people, it's like, this makes sense. Do this, do that, and do the other. And, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on coming up with these solutions. And I, I very much uh, I think that it will depend on small groups of people, you know, reading the book and talking about it among themselves. Mm-hmm. That's how, you know, small things do grow, and that's the perfect way to transfer knowledge um, is by getting informed and then talking about it. And if we don't start talking about it, then nobody's going to know it's out there, and nobody's going to know what's going on. It's going to hurt us a lot more. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, but we're running out of time, but I, I love talking to you. I think this topic is so relevant to all of our lives. doesn't matter whether you are in the U.S. or somewhere else, because like I said, if every nation looks into the interests of their own economy, there's a system, a better system, where all nations can help each other through trade and not by taking um, the factories away and just oppressing others over there. So uh, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, it's, it really is 
you know, it's it's this whole complex of global interest, and it and they're opposed to the national interests of every country in the world. That's you know, it it depends on what we define globalization with. Globalization should not be what it is right now. Globalization should be uh, uh, nations helping nations, not individuals helping other individuals. You know what I mean? From other nations. Yeah. 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 It's uh, yeah. It really has been corrupted in a, in a very unproductive way. Yeah, but unfortunately, you know, sometimes you know, you just things are taken the wrong way, and when run with it, they can produce devastating effects, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, Buck, I I'm so happy I had the opportunity to talk to you. I can't wait to see what you do, and I know I'm going to hear a lot more from you. So, um, again, thank you so much for being with us. And um, listeners, you need to visit his website again, www.swiftat.org. It is an awesome book. Check it out. And really, it will open your eyes and it will awaken you. And again, it's Swift Act, Swift Action for Permanent Recovery, something that is desperately needed for all of us in in the U.S. um, to have a, a better economy. Again, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Buck. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. And to you listeners, thank you so much for being with us, and until next time.